As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Welcome back to the programme that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we dive into this week's show, just a quick reminder to head over to our website, premierunbelievable.com, to find more shows, articles and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can get yourself a free ebook. I also want to tell you about our next Unbelievable Live on artificial intelligence, advanced robotics and DNA technology. The world of sci-fi is increasingly our daily experience, so how do we live faithfully in such a world? Dr John Wyatt, host of our Matters of Life and Death podcast and author of The Robot Will See You Now, will join Justin Briley and I to take your questions on our first live show of the new year, tomorrow, Tuesday the 10th of January. As always, it's free to attend online, but registration is essential. Visit unbelievable.live. Come along and learn how to live faithfully in a technologically confusing world. That's unbelievable.live. But now for today's show. Today is the first episode in a brand new series on the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis. Our focus here is on his Irish childhood. And over the next few months, Professor Alistair McGrath will be sharing his insight into many other aspects of Lewis's life. Alistair has written numerous books on Lewis, including a seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life. To celebrate 10 years since the release of this book, we're giving you the opportunity to win a copy, courtesy of publisher Hodder and Stoughton. Listen next week to hear how you can get yourself a free copy of C.S. Lewis, A Life. Like Lewis, Alistair was raised in Northern Ireland, studied at Oxford University and went on to become a professor there. Alistair also came to faith from atheism slightly later in life and Lewis's works have have had a profound impact on him. Professor Alistair McGrath shares his thoughts with me here. Alistair, we're going to focus this episode on Lewis's Irishness, which is something we we spoke about in the last episode that perhaps people don't always recognise of C.S. Lewis. So let's go right back to the beginning. What was C.S. Lewis's childhood like? Well, Lewis was born in the city of Belfast, um, and at this time there was no Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland was invented in 1921, so actually it's, it's best to say that Lewis was born in the Irish city of Belfast, because that's what it was at the time. And clearly he grew up um, in Belfast, um, very much aware of the, um, the religious tensions there, but also, I think, more importantly, of the cultural importance of Ireland. And there's some very important examples of this in letters he wrote to and, to and fro to his father, in effect saying, I am privileged to be born into a, a nation with uh, 
a, a facility for language, who, who in effect is able to almost uh, speak poetically. And there's this very clear indication that Lewis was aware that he'd been born into a cultural environment that was facilitating his own grasp of the English language. So I think that, that is very important. I mean, there are points actually in his writings where Lewis does seem to use um, some, some local Irish vocabulary, but nevertheless, it's never proved a problem to anyone. So I think that the best way of understanding Lewis's Irishness is here is someone who in effect feels they have a natural ability to express themselves, but is still reading other people to make that capacity for expression even better. And I suppose particularly in the early years when he was a very young child, I think it's probably fair, fair to say that C.S. Lewis had quite a stable, happy childhood, didn't he? He had. I mean, basically, he was bought, He was in a family. The father was a solicitor doing very well, I have to say, in the city of Belfast. He had a brother. Their mother looked after them very well. And both father and mother were literary people. They enjoyed reading books and they obviously kept all the books they read because Lewis talks about piles of books everywhere in uh, Little Lee. And uh, I think that is a sense in which almost Lewis entered into a family environment where reading and talking and thinking were just the the atmosphere he was breathing. And he and his brother, I mean, obviously enormously enjoyed not simply reading these books, but but playing imaginatively in the house, acting out some of the stories they were reading. So I think, you know, that there's some very interesting foundations being laid here for um, Lewis's later literary career. Well, and you say that there were these piles of books at Little Lee, the house where uh, Lewis grew up. But were there any particular books that had you know, a particularly significant impact on Lewis, do you think? Well, I think Lewis enjoyed reading people like um, uh, Edith Nesbitt and the, the Railway Children, that sort of thing. And Beatrix Potter, of course, really was very, very fashionable during the Edwardian years, and Lewis devoured her. And one thing I think that Lewis began to realise is he wasn't just enjoying reading books like this. Every now and then, he talks about this in Surprise by Joy, he would read a book and it seemed to evoke a sense of stepping into a new world. Uh, the kind of language he's using is that of um, the numinous or, or, or encountering something that goes way beyond anything he knows. But it's clear that what Lewis is realising is that literature can open doors to new worlds and not simply allow you to, to envisage them, but to step into them and feel what they were like. I think that's something that Lewis himself experienced during his childhood, and it is, I think, a very significant aspect of his later writing. And Lewis obviously had quite a close relationship with his older brother, Warney. Was that a significant feature of Lewis's life going forward, that relationship with his brother? It was a very important um, relationship. Um, Lewis um, and his brother, I think, went through a very difficult time, particularly following the death of their mother in 1908. And they became really soulmates. They would look after each other. Um, uh, during the First World War, when, when Lewis was wounded, his brother, who was also serving the British Army, got on his motorbike and drove all the way to make sure Lewis was okay in the heat of the First World War. And I think that one of the things that really struck me when I was researching this biography was the the sense of absolute delight both brothers took in being able to buy a house together in Oxford, the Kilns, and recreate 
their childhood environment where they could spend time with each other in the midst of books. And it's almost like, if you like, reconnecting again with their youth. It's just so important. And of course, Warney outlived Lewis and uh, stayed with him actually right till the end of his life uh, in 1963. And I suppose in some senses in that early childhood, that relationship between Warney and C.S. Lewis became difficult when Warney was sent to boarding school in England when Lewis was still quite young. How did Lewis cope with that subsequent loneliness? Well, Lewis's father, I think, had had visions for both his sons and thought they would be enormously helped if they were to be sent away to boarding school in England. And the evidence for that is actually quite slight, but his father clearly thought it was a good thing to do. So poor old C.S. Lewis is left on his own in this big house. And what does he have to read other than books? And so he really begins to immerse himself in books. But also, I think this is important, he begins to form some friendships. Um, and one of those will become significant later. But, uh, but uh, really, at this stage in his life, it's books that really matter because Lewis is quite a lonely, solitary figure. And the only people he is able to talk to are authors. He can read their books and imagine himself into their writings and actually learns to, learns to calibrate the way in which language can if you like, connect up with your feelings and create new worlds for you to step into and inhabit. So if you like, Lewis's solitariness becomes a vehicle for his ability to depict these wonderful new worlds that we see, for example, in the Chronicles of Narnia. And Lewis's sense of longing is something that he experienced throughout his life. And he wrote about it quite a lot, obviously in Surprised by Joy quite a lot. But it started at quite a young age, didn't it? Where did that sense of longing come from? And, and why do you think it was such an important thing for him? There are various points in which Lewis talks about this. It, uh, during his childhood, Lewis would get this feeling from reading certain books, but also, I think, from looking out of the windows of Little Lee at the Castlereagh Hills. Uh, if, if you don't live in Northern Ireland, these are actually quite low hills, but the, they are the only hills around. <laughs> and and um, Lewis would see these. And actually, whereas most people just say, hey, these are some rather unimpressive mountains, <laughs> Lewis saw them as evocative. Here is a symbol of a distant reality that I want to travel to and enter. It's all about uh, the idea of distance. There's something there waiting to be discovered. I'm seeing it. I'm not entering into it, but I, I want to do that. So if you like, it begins to become a symbol of the heart's desire. And so Lewis um, is very often finds that there are certain um, people or certain books or certain natural features, which you like, trigger off this sense of desire to be somewhere than he is, to have a, an enhanced vision of reality. And that is, is very, very important because in some of Lewis's novels, he is using words to try and create that sense of longing in his readers and then talk about how that sense of longing can be fulfilled. And that was quite a key part of his conversion, wasn't it? I mean, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a later episode. It was. And I think one of the things that Lewis is doing here is to, in effect, show how writing is able not simply to help people gain this experience, but to show them what it points to and how they can achieve the desire it's promising. 
You mentioned the impact of Lewis's mother's death quite early on in in his years. So in August 1908, Lewis's mother, Flora, died. And clearly that had a huge impact. But how did he respond to the death of his mother? Well, he was devastated. He talks about um, all his security evaporating. He talks about being bereft. You know, it it was devastating. I'm sure anyone listening to this can, can... empathize with this poor young boy losing his mother. Losing his mother, I have to say, um, to a rather painful long illness. Um, And Lewis was simply traumatized by this. And I think it marked the end of the first period of his life, the period of security. From that point onwards, Lewis was really unattached. He didn't have uh, uh, really, his father sent him away to boarding school in England where he never flourished. Um, and it, it, it helps us understand why he and his brother became so close. They were clinging on to each other, really, to, to keep each other going during these very difficult times. And do you think it's significant that Diggory's mother was healed in The Magician's Nephew? Is that kind of what Lewis would have wanted for his own mother, do you think? I think Lewis is here using his writing as a tool to try and to try and be a kind of salve or balm for his own deep existential wounds. Lewis, in effect, I think, would have loved for his mother to have been able to find that apple and be healed, and she wasn't. And I think Lewis, in effect, if you like, is simply saying, I, I'm writing this to express the fact that's what I would have longed to have happened to me, but it didn't. And you mentioned that the death of Lewis's mother drew him closer to his brother Warney. And um, wh- how did that death impact his relationship with his father? I think it's fair to say that Lewis's relationship with his father went downhill from then on. Here's what I personally think, although not all Lewis scholars would agree with me, that it is a very unwise father who, um, having lost his wife and having two brothers who have lost their mother to send the two brothers away from a stable family environment in a place they knew to somewhere in England where they'd never been before. I think that was very, very unwise. And I have to say that Lewis seems to have felt his father acted very unwisely in that situation. I suppose we can look back on this and say that Lewis learned through adversity. And maybe maybe the result is someone who's able to empathize with adversity, someone who's able to show how you can triumph over it. But the key point is that Lewis's father's decision to send him away from home so soon after his mother's death, I think was traumatic and very, very unwise. So I think we can see there the beginning of this alienation between father and son, which I have to say was never entirely overcome. And I suppose we've touched on this a little bit already, but was Lewis's Irishness important to him? And I suppose, more importantly, to his writing as well? Well, I think it was. I mean, Lewis was very clear that there was a long tradition of Irish literature of which he believed he was part. Now, one of the paradoxes here is that Lewis was the wrong kind of Irishman. And the kind of Irishness which really was expressed in the literature of the time was a kind of Catholic Irishness really concerned with, in effect, uh, re-establishment of national identity in the face of domination from England. And Lewis was Protestant, um, he was an atheist, but he's still a Protestant atheist, and actually didn't 
believed in home rule for Ireland, but didn't really want an independent Ireland. So if you like, um, Lewis is politically on the wrong side of an important divide in the Irish literature, um, Irish literary scene. And I think what I could say is simply that, that Lewis's Irishness is simply overlooked completely. If you take, for example, the standard guide to Irish writers, um, you'll very often find that Lewis isn't even mentioned. Uh, I think this is a very serious concern, and I think Lewis's Irishness does need to be reclaimed here. And what ways does his Irishness, his Irish roots, that you know, his um, the landscape of Ireland, what ways does he weave that into his writing? I think that there are a number of things. Um, I mean, those of, you, of your listeners who know Ireland will know that very often um, um, the, the mountains in Ireland are surrounded by mist because Ireland can get very wet. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lewis, in fact, once said, you know, you can easily tell when it's uh, summer in Ireland because the rain is warmer. Um, but <laughs> the, the key point here is that Lewis, in effect, picks up a lot of natural features of Ireland. For example, mountains shrouded in mist. And is able to do things with those in his later writings. For example, um, in Narnia, there are some recognisably Irish features um, built into the narrative. Until um, we have faces, again, the mountains there play quite an important role. And again, that may well go back to Lewis's time uh, in Ireland. So I think what we can say is that Lewis, in fact, in writing, I think is simply recreating in a highly imaginative form some of the natural landscapes he knew as a child, but also the way he responded to these emotionally. And do you think he thought of Ireland quite fondly then? Certainly. I mean, Lewis has this wonderful description of what heaven is like. Heaven, (laughs) he says, is like Oxford transplanted into the middle of County Down. County (laughs) Down is um, in the north of Ireland. It's a beautiful part of the world and has lots of low undulating green hills. It's very beautiful. And Lewis is saying, look, give me Oxford, put it in County Down. That is heaven. We're going to talk about his experience at English boarding schools in a later episode. But do you think there's a sense in which Lewis sort of felt like he didn't really fit anywhere? Maybe he didn't fit in Ireland because he'd been away for so long and perhaps he didn't fit in Oxford and places like that because of being Irish. Is there a sense in which he kind of was sort of stuck in the middle in some senses, do you think? I think that that's right. Uh, Lewis basically arrives at Oxford as an outsider. He knows nobody. All his initial friends at Oxford, and there are very few of those, are people with Irish roots. So you can see that really Lewis is going somewhere where he is not known and does not know anyone. Whereas most people from English public schools, for example, going to Oxford, will go with their friends. You know, they, uh, they're just they're just an extension of their school life. For Lewis, it was initially, I think, a difficult experience. But Lewis, I think, learned very quickly to be able to adapt to this and actually had to learn resilience. And I think you can see that coming out in his letters to Arthur Greaves, the sense, I am coping, I'm going to be strong, I'm going to get through this. And that's quite an important thing because Lewis was somebody who grew through adversity. That's an important theme throughout Lewis's life. And actually, I think we can see that echoed in some of his novels. And as we come to the end of this episode, you're obviously from County Down, where Lewis was from. How do you think we sort of retell his Irishness as part of the story going forward, do you think? I think one of the things we can just say is that very often um, uh, people are shaped by formative experiences. And very often these happen 
quite early on. The big one for Lewis, of course, was the Great War of 1914 to 18. But before that, back in Ireland, Lewis was in effect experiencing, reading, thinking in a particular environment. And that actually seems to have, if I can put it like this, almost created an imaginative template, a way of thinking, which seems to have stayed with him. So I think we, we really have to be, just emphasize again and again and again, Lewis's Irish roots are important. They matter to him. He'd always go back to Ireland for his holidays, for example. Um, and he was proud of them. And actually, that deep Irish literary tradition, whether implicit or explicit, really shapes his writing style. Alistair, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson. We were hearing there from Professor Alistair McGrath, author of C.S. Lewis, A Life. Listen in next week to see how you can win yourself a free copy of the book. Next time, we'll be diving into chapter two of Alistair's book. But before we go, just a reminder about our next unbelievable live tomorrow, Tuesday the 10th of January, which focuses on artificial intelligence, advanced robotics and DNA technology. Register free at unbelievable.live. Thank you for listening and see you next time. <laughs>